Welcome to My on Mondays, an explorative approach to the possessive my through narratives, art, and sound. Each Monday brings a new creation and unique perspective. My on Mondays is brought to you by Ming Studios, a contemporary art space and international artist residency program dedicated to the exhibition, experience, and exploration of arts and culture. Along with exhibiting artists from around the world, Ming also serves the community by hosting innovative programs including performances, workshops, screenings, readings, artist talks, and other cultural activities. For more information or if you'd like to participate in My on Mondays, you can visit our website at mingstudios.org. Good morning and welcome to the 47th episode of My on Mondays. Today is a continuation of our Disappearing Worlds series, where we talk about things that are either gone or in danger of being lost due to factors like gentrification, climate change, or simply time. My guest for this episode is Gallic language consultant Aga Vobroen. While he's best known for his work on the Stars Network series Outlander, Agav has worked tirelessly as an indigenous language and culture activist through various projects such as Dorloch, an organization working to salvage Scotland's perishing Gaelic dialects. In our discussion, we talk about the modern-day effects of colonization and marginalization in Scotland, and Agav tells about his own process of decolonization, which included learning to speak Gaelic himself, then reviving the local dialect of his region and teaching it to his children. So, so fantastic to talk to you. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, Welcome. Yeah. So, as I said in in the email when I spoke with you earlier, I've been following your work for a number of years. And um, so it's a real treat for me to get to talk to you in almost person. So, am am I correct? You, you You live in Glasgow right now. Yeah, yeah, and you're, I do. you're originally from the Argyle region of Scotland? Yeah, the, um, I, I grew up between Argyle and Glasgow. My parents parted ways when I was about six, going on seven, I think. Uh, and then I was back and forward between the two places. Okay. Uh, my whole, my, well, yeah, more or less my whole life until my father passed away uh, about 10, when, just, just over 10 years ago. Yeah. Oh, okay. I see. <clears throat> One of the things that we spoke about initially in our email conversation, which I I was really pleased to hear you speak about, was your own family tree. I I know I read somewhere that you you're on one side of your family you're Irish and then yep okay so that's um, my father's side okay and so you were looking at your Scottish side of the family tree and mm-hmm. trying to discern who had actually stayed in the area. And you were only able to find a single relation, which is incredible to me. And um, yeah. so, which you say is, is, comes off the back of centuries of colonialism and marginalization. And, and, oh, yeah. and I mean, without going into the history of that, I think there's a lot of Americans, I hope, who actually know that history because it's so uh-huh. entwined with our own history. Um, yeah, of course. But I, I'm curious what you notice today. What are the modern day effects 
of this lack of representation of the native people in this in this place this is your own ancestral land yeah yeah it, it, it's it's the commodification of the land commodity commodification of culture commodification of everything into saleable goods and saleable items whether that's houses whether it's land whether it's forests whether it's mountains you know come and climb this mountain because it's so fantastic mm -hmm. i've got five stars on this app and you know it, 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 that's obviously only just a recent symptom um, of the disease that this, this sort of uh, internet app driven social media driven instagram tourism thing but um the, the roots of that are, are are long ago you know when you think of the fact that the victorians uh, began to think of the highlands suddenly as an attractive place to visit and, and rather than the dark foreboding hell that they considered it previously full of people who mm -hmm. refused to be tamed mm -hmm. you know refused to sort of Kowtow to the uh, quote-unquote civilization that England could bring, you know. Yeah. I mean, how many indigenous peoples across the world have had to, to suffer under that yoke? You know, so they suddenly kind of turned around once this, the Highlanders, uh, and I suppose it was fully similar at a certain point in, in parts of Ireland, once the, the most fearsome fighting force in Western Europe, the Gales, had been tamed, then the land was no longer somewhere that gales could be hiding around every corner, waiting to mug people passing in horses and carriages or whatever. You know, the, the place was uh, um, now uh, an attractive holiday destination. And so what you find is, you know, the landscape starts to be painted by romantic painters who, who start to portray it as this attractive place to go. You know, people like Wordsworth are coming up to, to Scotland and writing, you know, waxing lyrical about it. Queen Victoria mm -hmm. suddenly decides it's her favourite place in the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Walter Scott starts writing about the Highlanders as being romantic suddenly when before they had, had been you know, sort of uh, idiot brutes, you know. Mm -hmm. And of course, this, the, the ironic thing is that the Highlanders had thought of the Lowlanders as the idiot brutes, you know. The, the Highlanders thought of the Lowlanders as, as the pale-faced, kale-eating, whiskey-drinking, you know, um, uh, you know, because uh, 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 the Highlanders didn't have a, a, this whiskey tradition we have now. They, they, you know, the, the chiefs drank imported wine. The the, the, the clans people drank ale, and this uh, crude sort of spirit that was getting distilled was actually a lowland thing. So so many things have been flipped in their heads. You know, the Highlanders really well wear kilts now, whereas Lowlanders will wear them at, at their weddings, and you know things mm -hmm. like that. It's, it's a really peculiar situation. Um, I, I, we've got a natural schizophrenia in Scotland and I, and I use that mm. term strictly in a non-medical sense with respect to those yeah. who suffer from, from that disorder but it, we do have this natural schizophrenia but um, suddenly we find the Highlands having been pacified then, then becoming a destination for holiday makers and for people who want to treat our, our deer who to us are a t t totemic animal they're, they're sacred to us our deer and our salmon, you know, the, no two more totemic animals in, in, in Gaelic culture. Start, they want to treat these as commodities. And um, and suddenly the gale can't, sh you know, go up on the moor and shoot a stag. You know, we, we can't go, go to the, the stream and take a, a salmon. You know, we can't just, uh, you know, go and get a log uh, from, from the forest in order to make the things we need out of wood. Or, so uh, this is a sort of process that's set in motion. Um, and then ultimately, when you come down to the modern age and you get the, the revivalist take on Gaelic language, which is really a process of um, commodification as well. Uh, and now people are looking at the economic benefits of Gaelic, um, you know, r rather than uh, the, the, the fact that what it actually is for, for people who are ethnically Gaelic, you know, and, and who recognise that, that legacy 
what it actually is for, for us is a zip line, you know, back into the primordial crucible of our people. You know, it's an interface with uh, the natural uh, world and the land on which we stand. You know, yeah. it, it's not something that can be packaged up and sold for economic benefit. But but this is the sort of situation that we're, we're in just now. So the people, well, my, my people are sort of started to break up in terms of not being able to make a living um, from the land anymore. Um, you know, during the famines of the, the 19th century, uh, the, the genocide in Ireland and the, 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 the so-called famine, but it really was a genocide in Ireland. Yeah. And, and then the famines that affected the highlands as well. It's really the middle of the 19th century. And you start to see my people beginning to come across from Ireland or down from the highlands. Um, and that process basically sort of rages on through until the mid-20th century. And so over that century, really, you know, from the famines of the mid-19th century through to the conclusion of the Second World War, um, you see this total drain of, of, of my people and, and really everyone's people, everyone knows mm. the similar story. You know, you see populations in these townships, uh, you know, being being halved and then quartered. And, and, and it's, uh, you know, they're only being bolstered now by people who have enough money to, to buy the commodified land and houses. So this this process results in a total lack of agency for Native people. And I mean, goodness gracious, um, you know, here you've got a, a, a Scottish gale of, of Irish and Highland descent saying this, but uh, if we had one of my Mohawk friends and my Wet'suwet'en friends and my Maori friends here, I mean, they would just be saying exactly the same yeah. thing, you know? Yeah. So the lack of agency because of, of, of lack of free interface with the land, because the land has been commodified mm. into, into a saleable item, um, then leaves people sort of rootless and dislocated and unable to um, essentially steer their own ship. So we end up yeah. with this kind of anchorless ship and people just get sort of, they just career out to sea in this anchorless ship. Um, and eventually a lot of them go under. I mean, when you think of the amount of drug and alcohol issues and, and you know, all sorts of domestic violence, goodness knows what, that, that goes on amongst displaced peoples. Yeah. It's because they're rudderless, anchorless ships. Mm -hmm. So this is the sort of thing that happens. And, and, and then, you know, here you have me, a rudderless ship as a, as a teenager going out in the early 20s, surviving through rock and roll. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's, it definitely saves souls, no doubt about it, you know. Uh, takes them as well, of course, but uh, there you have me surviving through playing music, um, a definite rudderless bow, and just this one grandmother, the only grandparent I had, who was off of these Highland people but had lost the language and all that, you know, mm -hmm. passing me a couple of phrases she still had, telling me where my people came from, who they were, handing on the old handwritten family trees and quill and ink and all this wow. sort of a thing. But of course, as a teenager, you're going, oh, that's brilliant, that's fascinating, I love it, and I really did. But you're not really getting the gravity of what this actually means. You're thinking about, yeah. oh, yeah, that's my family tree. But what it actually is, is just one representative uh, legacy from one um, conglomeration of people who happened to get together and get married and have kids and all the rest of it that finally resulted in me. It's only, you don't realise that it's only one facet of this dirty diamond of, mm. of the colonial model, which has resulted in all this dislocation. Yeah. And so when I then came to, to realise I was, you know, going to marry my, my wife here and we were going to have a family, um, I already had one daughter previous to that, but when I realised we were actually going to intentionally have a family, then I, I kind of said, well, you know, what do I want 
for them, do I want the dislocation to continue so that they fill up the holes in themselves with the commodities that actually previously belonged to their people? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is the huge irony about it, you know. <laughs> or, or do I want them to actually, do I want them to grow up from as early as I can possibly manage with their own language, with their own culture, as uh, much a part of them as their own hands or, or the, the air they breathe or you know uh, how do i want to do this yeah and so that's what that's what i did i, I did i just said the buck stops with me mm-hmm. and that's it it's, i'm not allowing them to, to to live this dislocation because i came out of my early 20s and i'm desperately mentally degraded state you know really bad struggles with alcohol drugs and goodness knows what and, and mentally just a total and utter mess mm-hmm. you know and uh it was like, well, where where did all that come from? Why did all that happen? And do I want to pass this crap on? Or do I want to act as the filter that every good parent should be and essentially let all the uh, the dead rats and goldfish and toilet paper hit the net before it flows out into the sea? <laughs> <laughs> so that was a long, long answer. <laughs> No, but it's fantastic, and it you know it's something that I've thought about a lot. I'm I come from a mixed biological, mixed racial heritage. My mm-hmm. I actually just met my father, who is American, uh, about six years ago, and so I oh. it, it's I've been sorting out his ancestry at this point I know more about our family than he does and I didn't grow up in it but on my mother's side my mother's from Venezuela and and Ah. so on on my maternal side I'm a first generation American and I've always felt this sort of very um yeah this dislocated sort of floaty feeling not really having any connection to this place where i was born and raised yeah and it's so it's something that i've thought about a lot what that dislocation from our ancestral lands does to a person i mean i've seen what it's done just to my own mother and and her siblings and it's 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 immense yeah Uh, one of the things i i think that comes up a lot in your um this is just another extension of what you have already been talking about is decolonialization mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. decolonization is something that's really central to your work and i and i think there's so many people that a haven't even heard the term before and so i would like to know you know what is your definition of it and and what does that process mean to you how aside from just learning the language what are what are the ways because there's there's you know traditions that have been lost there's all kinds of things that have been lost yeah um no great it's a great question because at, at the end of the day um it depends how far away your 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 ancestral tradition is. Mm-hmm. And for some people, they are, you know, uh, for instance, first generation uh, British citizens, or first generation American citizens, or Canadian citizens. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it happened that you know only just whatever the previous generation, their people were. You know, I don't know. They were they were Basque or or they were Sami or they were whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and they they still have access to that through their parents. Um, and whether their parents are speakers of the language or not, of course, another thing, and that's that's another facet of it. But if the further back you go with the connection, say you're fourth or fifth generation 
Um, but you're still, in a sense, as you say, because of that dislocation, you're still the child of incomers, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you quickly, you quickly realise the more you delve into it, that so much of the, the kind of um, lack of sense of place is quite strictly just to do with the fact that you may never have set foot on on ancestral soil. And I mean, I hadn't been to Ireland until I was thirty-six years old. Oh, I wow. hadn't been to Cape. Ca- I hadn't been to Caithness until I was 27. Hmm. So that 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 just that just shows you, you know. And 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 since going to these places, I mean, it's almost like there's been an automatic reversal of certain insecurities and certain, you know, a lack of groundedness and that. So my my thing with the decolonisation is a really simple thing, and and people will be like, oh yeah, very good, you know, like that's not very imaginative or, or, you know, particularly instructive, but this is actually the way to do it from experience. As you go back to where your people are from, and if you have a very mixed heritage, this can often be challenging as well, this sort (laughs) of thing, but you then have to, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not going to tell people what to do, but in my experience is, is if you have heritage from, say, three, four or more different places, you have to put them on your bucket list to get there. So rather than going on holiday and, and putting your feet up for, for 10 days in the sun, whatever, you know, yeah, by all means do that. But, you know, I'm not telling you what to do. But if you're really keen on the decolonization thing, if you really want to delve into your heritage, then you have to put these things aside and you have to um, sacrifice coming back in any way relaxed from these holidays mm-hmm. because you're going to come home with more questions, more yeah. challenges. And, and, and if, uh, you know, so um, do that and hit all these places that your people are, are from. Take off your socks and shoes and walk on the bare earth. And, and that's mm-hmm. all I can say. If you spend a few days walking on the bare earth and you know that your people walk that same earth, that is almost 50% of the journey just in one goal done. Now, it affects different people differently. Some people might feel absolutely nothing. The chances are that, you know, maybe whatever, I don't know, the DNA memory thing, maybe it's not come down as strongly from that place. Experiment some more. Go to another place that your people come from. Try all these things out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, as I say, it maybe sounds very simplistic, but uh, it, for me, it's absolutely step one. And then when you feel that connection, and sometimes the connection won't happen until you get home, at home, you know, mm-hmm. back to where you happen to abide, uh, and, and then you suddenly five nights later, once you're home, you're lying and you burst out crying, you're like, oh my God, I missed that place I was in, or, you know, whatever. There are all kinds of different things that can happen, um, and I'm just riffing on these, I'm just saying random things, just because, you know, at the end of the day, for everyone, it will be completely different. Yeah. But that's the first thing to do. So mm-hmm. get your feet on the soil. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, I first discovered you through the your Daliata website, where oh, yeah. you are you have recordings and and written things in the dialects, the native dialects of Gaelic, from mm-hmm. various uh, parts of the. Is it just the Argyle region? It is, isn't it? it? It's just it's just central Argyll. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, so I discovered your work through that website, and I can't remember how I found it. But um, so I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing with the language. Um, I guess you could be called an indigenous language activist. And you started yourself by learning the Gaelic language. And then um, can you tell me a little bit about that process 
for you, how you, yeah. that began? Yeah, just following on from my answer to the last question, of, of course, I didn't realise I had to get my feet planted onto the soil. So I actually started with the language. The language mm -hmm. was how my decolonisation process began. Okay. But actually, actually, it's really two or three steps down the list. Yeah, you know? yeah. But um, not realising that at the time, and also being in Glasgow, and you know, at the time being a student and being pretty skin, pretty broke, you know, um, it was like, well, I can't just hop a train up to Caithness. I don't have the money. Mm -hmm. I don't have a car. You know, I can't just go over to Ireland. So, um, you know, what, what what I did was, well, I can learn the ancestral language even if I can't learn the exact dialect. So that that's what I did to start with. I just got every single book that I could find, you know, every single resource. I, I did every single thing apart from actually attend any kind of... Well, I, I did my Gaelic hire ultimately just for the sake of putting it on the list of hires that I got. That's like, um, gosh, what's the equivalent in the States? It's like when you... Your SAT or something, is that mm -hmm. right? Before you go to uni? Yeah, so the, like the, the, the grades you get before you go to university. So I was okay. like, I never got one of those in Gaelic and I feel grieved about that i should have been able mm. to do that in school and you know it's, yeah. it's my people's language so i went back and did that for the sheer sort of sake of putting that 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 wrong right but otherwise i, I didn't really take any classes apart from go along the odd conversation class and things like that pretty much did it all myself and just sitting devouring every single book i could get a hold of but pretty quickly I realised that this this Gaelic that I was learning um, was, you know, the standard, you know, I mean, it, it, the equivalent of newsreader English or something. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? It, it had no relation to me whatsoever. And at the time when when I became semi fluent in language, I was speaking, I suppose, a broadly South Uist leaning dialect originally. I'd, I mean, I'd only ever been to South Uist once on a bike with my mates. Uh -huh. You know, slept in a tent, drank a load of beers, and went home. Do you know what I mean? It, it, yeah. it, you know, I knew nothing about Uist. Yeah. So it was silly that I was speaking a standard tongue, and so. Been look, I'd always been looking into what the dialects were all about. And the one time there was over 200 in Scotland. Yeah, I was um, just reading an article about that. And I guess I should, for uh, the listeners, because there's a, a lot of people who aren't going to know anything about Gaelic at all. Um, I, I was just reading an article that at one point, I think it was in the 1950s, there were still 200 dialects or variations or whatever yeah. you want to call them of Gaelic yeah. that were still being spoken in Scotland, and now there are only two that are considered um, viable. Viable, yeah, that that can continue to survive. And one is the, right. the Lewis dialect and the South Uist dialect. So that's what that's you're right. speaking of. You were you were speaking the South Uist. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I was, and and I mean the the broader language thing is Gaelic is Gaelic the, the the language of the Gaels. So the Gaelic people are, are from you know Ireland through the Isle of Man and, and the Highlands of Scotland at one mm -hmm. time much further south than that. Um, and then there are sort of national uh, you know boundaries put up that you know there's Irish, Scottish, and Manx, but really there's not. That's geopolitics, mm -hmm. you know, in the cultural ethnic sense, um, especially between Ireland and Scotland. There's there's a, a strong sort of sisterhood, you know. Um, and at one time there was just a dialect continuum which stretched from the southwest of Ireland right to, up to the very northeast, almost the northeastern tip of Scotland. So that was the situation there. And, and that, that continuum lasted until really about World War Two, And then some of the bridging dialects between Scotland and Ireland fell into very, very poor repair. And of course, Ireland, the north of Ireland had been planted intentionally by the British state 
which really broke up that continuum and made Northern Ireland to, to an extent an other, whereas it, it wasn't really, of course, you know, whatever your outlook on it, you know, originally speaking, of course, shouldn't have happened. And it, and it, it, it really uh, interrupted the flow of Gaelic culture from one end of that, that continuum to the other. But uh, so after a while, I learned the standard tongue and get, sort of getting fairly conversational in it. My, my father, by that time, had moved from Middergill to Northergill. And I knew some old people there, plus a young fellow who'd spent a lot of time with those those old people himself, and he'd learned the the, the, the dialect up there, up in Lismore, kind of an area, to fluency. And I learned the first dialect, you know, Gaelic that I learned was from him. Um, and once I started to bring my standard tongue over towards Argyle, my natural inclination was to look and see if there was any people left in the area that I grew up in. Yeah. And so I went around there and I, and I essentially got hold of every single person willing to speak to me, which was more or less everybody. And out of some people, all I got were words, but there were people who couldn't speak the language anymore. Um, but who had words, one mm-hmm. or two of which weren't even in the dictionaries. You know, wow. so th- there was pre- precious material to be gathered. So I spent about a decade between 2010 and, and 2020, um, and I, I found a couple of people who were sort of conversational still and recorded them, especially one of them, at, at very great length. So I've got about 60 hours of this one fella wow. okay. um, on, on, on records. I've no idea what I'm going to do with it all. But he didn't care. He was just like, just crack on, son, you know, just do what you need to do, you know. What a treasure. Uh, main, That's amazing. The, the main thing that I did was that I began to speak the dialect. Well, I'd spoken Gaelic to my kids since they were born. Mm. Um, and one of one of my kids, my fifteen-year-old, can still just remember the odd word that I used to use from the previous regime when I was still speaking sort the of standard Gaelic. Yeah. She, she can remember odd words that I used to use, but the other two don't remember me speaking anything other mm. than this dialect. Mm-hmm. So I've spoken it to them more or less since they were born, um, and they're all now completely fluent mm-hmm. native speakers. Yeah. So that intergenerational rift has has um, been been healed, um, you know, to a great extent yeah. with that. You know. Yeah, that's. I mean, that that just is amazing to me that you did that, and and so the idea is that they'll continue and teach their children and hope and hopefully teach other people as well and oh yeah yeah they're 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 you know absolutely vociferous about the fact that there's not a chance they're speaking a word of english to their kids yeah you know yeah so (laughs) it's incredible it's it's so beautiful you know i was thinking about as we talk about decolonization there's so much that I think is incorporated into language and it, and it goes so much deeper than just communication. I was thinking back to a time where I was um, a friend of mine, a Lebanese friend of mine was trying to teach me a little bit of the Lebanese dialect of Arabic. And yep. as he was doing so, I was trying to wrap my mind around this phrase. I don't even remember what the phrase was at the time, but it uh-huh. occurred to me if I were to try to phrase phrase something in the same way in English, it wouldn't make sense to anyone. And it was no. the first time because no. I, I speak Spanish, but there's enough similarity that, you know, it, it, it makes sense. But Arabic, it was like, it was my first realization that it illustrated to me how different their the mind ah, works. Yes. It was sort of like, wow, that's how you think of something? That is completely, 
foreign alien to me, yeah, you know, yeah, and it was so yeah. fascinating. And so, I, I mean, I think when you lose these dialects, when you lose indigenous languages, yeah. you're not just losing one form of communication. It's you're losing uh, a whole different way of thinking, of seeing the world, of, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely, no, you're absolutely spot on, and and it is amazing um, how learning another language, especially when it differs significantly enough from your own, um, what it actually does. It really is, um, you know, it's it's like the the matrix pill or something. You know, you take it and suddenly, boom, you mm -hmm. know, you're you're educated in an instant, yeah. just by the realization of a, of 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 a few idioms you've been taught. You know, mm -hmm. that, that show you the grammatical structure of the language. What and also the interesting thing is, is, is what speakers of a different language consider similar or consider, you know, not requiring of a, of a separate term. For instance, in, in, um, in Gaelic, I mean, we, we talk about a, a shelachuk as a slug and a snail. Now, the fact that one has a, has a shell on its back is neither here nor there. Mm -hmm. It's just the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, whereas, whereas um, the way that we would call a, a centipede, yes, we mentioned the hundred legs. But, you know, what we actually compare it to, we say, which is the deer of a, of a hundred legs. Oh, wow. Because it's got, Fia, because it's got that's antlers. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh -huh. So it, it, there's not a chance any English speaker would ever compare a deer <laughs> to a centipede. It just would yeah. never happen. Yeah. And yet that's the way we look at it, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's so there we go, you know. And... I, th I think as well that there would be maybe people who would criticise me for saying that the land is dumb, as in D-U-M-B, you know, it's, mm. it's, un it's unable to speak. They would say, oh, no, it's not. It. I know, I know, I know, I know. Of course, of course it can speak. However, the land cannot actively advocate for itself because mm. us humans are here as the stewards of the land and that is our job and that's yeah. what we're supposed to be doing. So the, the the issue with losing local language is that you, that the land loses its its interface with other places. So the land sends out human beings as envoys from every place to speak mm -hmm. of its wonders and its beauties, right? And then when when these envoys come from that place and speak the language of the colonial invader instead of that of, of the place itself, then you know, on whose behalf are they really speaking? And it tends mm -hmm. to it tends to be that they are speaking on behalf of their own egos, their own mm -hmm. insecurities, you know, their their own skewed concept of what's important about the place. They're not speaking from a tradition of generations upon generations of ge upon generations who have been in a symbiotic relationship with the land. Yeah. And 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 this is something that incomers just cannot get their heads around. You know, uh, and, and this is the thing, obviously, I speak as someone who is the child of immigrants to Glasgow, which is a, a huge city, it's 1.8 million inhabitants, you know. So really, you're lost in a sea of people here as you are in, in any other city, a, a, a condition that I, I you know, deeply regret having to live with, um, you know, but uh, I've not found my road out just yet. Mm. But um, if you lose the language of the land, then the land ceases to be able to adequately advocate for its for for itself, and that's another consideration that should really be top of the 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 list, you know, because it language isn't a people think of it almost in a curatorial uh, sense, 
you know, how fascinating and how interesting it is. And don't get me wrong, I mean, you and I will think about it exactly the same way as well. Mm-hmm. But they, they, they often lack the, the, the grounding factors and what makes local language important. They, 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 they lack understanding of how the language is rooted in the earth and the fact that the symbiotic relationship exists between land and language. So the land forms the language yeah. that people speak because it provides the conditions and, and through you know, in, in which people have to live their lives, but then the land is is um, by the same token then named by the people who do, who describe it according to the language that was gifted to them by the land. Yeah. So the land, the land really names herself, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that <laughs> you know? that is such it's such an important point, and I and I think one that people probably never even think about. And that that brings me back to the point of the sort of the standard version of Gaelic is is it, it's called mid minch right? That's sort of the, well, what, what's yeah. being taught in schools. Is am I correct about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, and so I'd like to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing, um, both with the your own website, the the Dalriata website, and then mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. it Dorlach? Is oh, that, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that project and what you guys are doing? Yes, yeah, so so Dorlach is Dorlach is like an umbrella for projects like Dalriada Gaelic. Mm-hmm. So uh, I myself have two revival projects on the go. The Dalriada Gaelic project is more or less complete other than, ah, I'm saying more or less complete, other than, <laughs> other than the fact that we need to produce a dictionary and we need to get the rest of the material uploaded to Dalrada.scot. Mm-hmm. That process really, that, that, that process really stopped when all of my old friends passed away. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've lost, oh gosh, it'd be six or seven over the last two years, um, people who were still, to an extent, able to understand the spoken language a little bit, still come out with the odd words, you know, people yeah. who were, as Nancy Dorian called them, rememberers. And so that kind of stymied the process. It, it took the wind out of my sails. Yeah. Um, and so the Dalriada project ground to, 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 to uh, really ground to a halt. And I freely admitted that on our Facebook page and just said, look, having lost all these people, it's really knocked the wind out of my sails. Mm-hmm. But the other project that I've been working on is um, the dialect of my mother's people. Um, and that's uh, uh, Gaelic Skier Learn, and and that was the language that was spoken um, in the extreme far northeast of Scotland, uh, an area people don't associate with Gaelic language and culture at all. Um, mm-hmm. Caithness. So in the western half of Caithness, the Gaelic language was spoken as a first language uh, by most people still in, in the mid nineteenth century, and it died away there. Um, before uh, the, the Gaelic of Midargyll, there were still speakers, fluent speakers of Midargyll Gaelic. You know, a, a few of them into this century. Whereas Caithness fluent speakers, you know, you, you perhaps had one or two still around in the fifties, and mm-hmm. that was about it. Wow. So it, it was it was five. It, I would say it was about fifty to sixty years ahead of, of Central Argyll in terms of dying away. So when I first came to the language. Um, and I was trying to work out how Caithness Gaelic would have sounded. I mean, I, I would be emailing any bugger that would listen to me, you know what I mean? Um, just saying, well, what do you know about this? People mm-hmm. that, that I thought might be in the know. And just nobody knew anything. Wow. And so it's it's been about 15-odd years 
of just scraping the tiniest little fragments of, you know, dirt off the back of stones. You know, that that's really mm. how it's been to try and put the thing back together. But I can now speak the language in my mother's area pretty fluently, as well as the dialect of Central Argyle. Incredible. So, yeah. um, and then the next project will be trying to revive the, the Gaelic as it was spoken in County Derry, where my, my father's people are from. Okay. Um, but that's still to come. Uh, and there's people already doing that at least so that so that's going to be good to just plug into what they're up to and try and help rather than having to start it from scratch but i'm very interested in this concept of the disappearing world still mm-hmm. um because that's that's a really crucial conception um, in terms of what's happening here because i remember nancy dorian saying that the embo fisher folk didn't feel that their dialect was dying they felt that their language was dying mm-hmm. because they didn't see the fact you know they spoke a very peculiar specific dialect I mean it's peculiar because just about to everybody other than themselves it was peculiar you know yeah. uh, they spoke this very very specific dialect from the fishing villages of East Sutherland and when it was dying away they weren't thinking about oh but it's fine you know there's people on the west coast that still speak Gaelic you know teach it their kids and all the rest of mm-hmm. it they weren't thinking it that, about it that way they were thinking that their language was, was, was dying Yeah. so the disappearing world concept is interesting because because there were local expressions and people thought of their dialect just as their language and it was all they had until English was forced into their lives, then the disappearing world thing is literally these tiny fragments, you know, it's like little icicles that are are, are, are just slowly shrinking to nothing under the blazing colonial sun, mm. you know. And I, I'm trying to sort of pick them up and put them in, you know, freezer locked bags and mm-hmm. keep them refrigerated. Do, do yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's an intensely sort of grief laden process. Um, and I remember a, a friend of mine saying to me, "You know, you're not running at a, you know, you know, your top speed away from the burning house. You're that idiot that goes back and looking for the bloody photographs." You know, and I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I, I totally you know sympathise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, and oh, he, he, he he is he he helped me for years with my, my work. He documented a lot of my work, and brilliant guy. He meant it in the nicest possible way, but you know, I was like, no, you're absolutely bang on. I am that idiot yeah. who runs back in the burning house. You know, um, and there is an in- incredible melancholy about it, which mm-hmm. I mean, I. You know, I've cried as many tears as I've smiled smiles during this process, you know, and the only smiles of any great note other than time spent with my elders is time spent with my kids because the rest of the process is just absolutely and utterly grief-laden from dawn till dusk. Mm -hmm. And it's just uh, entirely exhausting. Um, And I've no real, you know, I don't know, I've no real explanation uh, as to why I do it. I can, I can, I can wax lyrical for an hour about it, and I might just about get close to the heart of it somehow. But I could also, you know, um, just sit in silence and cry, and that would explain it just as well. It's really, really hard to explain why I do it, but yeah. I would call it an ancestral imperative or yeah. a cultural imperative. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, I really feel you on that one. I, and I wonder that if you, you do you mind me asking? On your Venezuelan side, do you know if there was any indigenous Venezuelan folks? There was. There was. And Uh I, unfortunately, I I do know that my grandfather's mother was indigenous. um, But I, the sad thing is, I don't even know what tribe. Right. I mean, that, that is how, 
you know, I look at my my family. I've I've lived in Venezuela. I've spent a lot of time there. And, you know, my mom still has siblings over there. And I was close with my grandfather and listening to people talk and then spending time over there. You really there's so much of a of a self-hatred embedded in the culture. You know, my oh, family, yes. I'm, I'm very yes. fair. I'm very fair skinned because my father is, you know, white, blonde hair. My mother's okay. side of the uh -huh. family is mostly African and, and uh, a little bit of indigenous and a very small bit of Spanish. And I did discover DNA, okay. which is super bizarre. The most surprising thing I found out, my mother has a tiny bit of Irish blood. <laughs> so. Well, well, yeah, well. I found a, I found a, a relative through her who is living in Dublin and and I emailed her and I, I said, do you have any idea of any familial connection that you and it was very distant. It's, you know, super far back. Sure. But sure. she said, no, I have no idea. And then the next day she emailed me back and she said, Google the Irish in Venezuela. It's really interesting. And it, <laughs> it turns out that I'm assuming that this is what the connection is. It's the most likely story that in the 1800s, the Irish after after the Napoleonic Wars, troops went of unemployed Irish soldiers went to Venezuela to fight with Simon Bolivar against the Spanish. Well, 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 well. <laughs> that sounds like us. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't know. I got off totally on a tangent there, but um, no. But I, sorry, that was that was my question I asked. Yeah, there's. I know. I know, you know so little, and it. You know, and I've been working on genealogy and trying to figure out, and I just can't get back very far because there's. You know, my. I know on my. My grandmother's side, my maternal grandmother, her father was the son of a slave, and wow. and his father his father was from a Spanish, a well-known Spanish family. I figured out yeah. which one he was uh, because it's a it's a well-known family of an important artist in Venezuela, and because mm -hmm. he was half Spanish, he was given up for adoption to another Spanish family because he couldn't, he was important enough that he couldn't be raised by a slave, but not because he was also half black, he couldn't be raised ah, by his yes. actual father. Right. <laughs> so, oh, for goodness I mean, it's just, yeah. the, it's just, and then here I have, you know, my grandfather's mother, I know she was indigenous, but I don't even know what, from what region or tribe or what, anything. What region? I, I know well, nothing. Well, I, I know that there is a there is quite a fair bit of confusion for people um, from Venezuela who have indigenous heritage because yeah. I have a friend. Um, well, it's actually my friend's my very good friend's partner. She and this friend of mine are, are coming to Scotland this year, in fact, to, to engage in some community work and to spend time with myself and others. And she is also part indigenous Venezuelan. Mm -hmm. So. Um, if I have any tips on that front, you know, I'll definitely extract those yeah. as politely as politely as possible and pass them yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the point I was trying to make though is just about the self-loathing. You know, as my mother, you know, she's got the t typical kinky curly hair of of most mm. Venezuelans, and my grandfather would hate it when because she would just leave it natural. And, yeah. you know, and she, he would say things, oh, you look like a negra, <laughs> you know, and I said, well, she oh, is, no. <laughs> you oh. know, or, and then, you know, uh, a really common, a really common thing is to say, you know, oh, you look like an Indian. There's such a self-loathing embedded in the culture 
and yeah. it's oh. it's depressing. Yeah, I mean that, that's all very familiar. Mm-hmm. Obviously, w- within the Gaelic peoples, that there's a, a huge sort of spectrum of appearance variation, and it's it's, it's very interesting. In fact, that we do have the quite discernible types. There are folk that I can pick out if I walk past someone in the street. I can say, "Oh, he's a used man," you know, or I can mm. say, "Oh, she looks like she's uh, she comes from from Lewis," so, you know. And and it ranges from extremely pale people with sea blue eyes and and you know, uh, you know, so translucent skin and, and red hair or body, mm-hmm. right up to people who are so dark skinned that you would think that they would be Mediterranean at the least. Mm-hmm. You know, with really dark brown eyes and almost black hair. You yeah. know, so it, it's, it's really interesting. However, partly because of that variation already being inherent within the people, then the assimilation thing was really quite easy, of course, into mm-hmm. mainstream British society because um, you know there was no very very particular Gaelic skin colour. For instance, we're just mm-hmm. as almost as pale as other people, but with that variation that's natural within paler skin folk so we, we never experienced any of that um what would i say that that marginalization due to due to our appearance yeah. particularly once we obviously cease to dress differently we cease to hold ourselves this differently we cease to walk differently you know we weren't pushing into the blowing wind anymore or, or crouching under the rain and you know we weren't doing yeah. the things that we really did and we assimilated then, of course, naturally huge uh, sections of Irish and Highland population uh, came in amongst the Glasgow people. And suddenly you start going, gosh, they've got a really Glasgow face. But then I would turn around and go, oh, I wouldn't say that. I would say actually they're Irish. And then you ask them and it turns out mm-hmm. their grandparents are. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so these stories start to become embedded in the, the kind of body politic of urban areas. And yet nobody actually knows where any of it comes from or why. Yeah. So it becomes at once a mercy because obviously the Gaelic people lack that marginalisation that people suffer because of the colour of their skin. But it also means that we assimilate so far that people get almost in a sense, and I say this respectfully because people might disagree with me here, but they almost get more lost hmm. because there's no physical, you know, really obvious physical yeah. defining feature. And people mm-hmm. will say, well, what about the red hair? And you're like, well, actually, that was originally Norse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. We can't even claim that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, one uh, there's one last thing I'd like to ask you about, and this is shifting gears just a little bit. But, you know, I work for an arts organization. I'm I'm a musician and myself. And uh-huh. so I'm, I'm really curious about, I know that you play music as well. You're involved yes. in the arts in several facets. I, I believe you're involved in the production of some film projects as well, right? Oh, gosh, yeah, lots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a lot of people will be familiar with my work on Outlander, although certainly be familiar with Outlander, the series that airs on Stars. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I stopped working with them a couple of years ago now, um, but the first five seasons contain my, my work. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, they were less less careful than I was with the Gaelic and, and some of the some of the uh, takes that get cut in are less than perfect, shall okay. we say. <laughs> But that's the problem with working with Hollywood. You know, it's um, yeah. the culture. Uh, the culture is a bit of window dressing, but it, but it can quite often end up taking a back seat for mm-hmm. you know behind other priorities, such as life. Um, but the other couple of projects I've been working on, I was working on one called Origins, which um, hasn't made much progress in the last little while. It was um, 
I suppose almost like Scotland's uh, answer to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, very light-hearted, very oh, sort okay. of silly. But but potentially, I, I think it's got legs um, hmm. and, and lots of Gaelic uh, very liberally dispersed through it, you know. Fantastic. But the other two projects which were, um, one of them no less fantastical but a little more serious in tone is, is called The Herring Girls. A uh, very talented lady by the name of Rekha Garton. It's R-E-K-H-A-G-A-R-T-O-N. And you'll find her in Instagram especially. Um, and she's got lots of clips from the film. She's the writer and director. Uh, fantastic script she, she penned as well. Um, and I just shot that with Rekha and the rest of her crew a couple of months back. And that's the story of, as she puts it herself, uh, merfolk, uh, magic and madness. Um, not necessarily in that order, <laughs> but it's a sort of, it's a 15, it's being cut as we speak. It's a 15 to 20 minute short, but it's rammed full of Gaelic language. The only English in it, I think, is when at one point, um, you know, one of the characters gets called a witch by somebody in English. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's Gaelic language from end to end. All the parts nice. were actually offered to Gaelic, to either native or fluent Gaelic speakers, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, very few of them were able to engage. So we actually only got one. So it meant that I had to teach the language to the oh, other wow. three girls who okay. were all they were they were all English. So it was shades of Outlander all over again. <laughs> uh, but gosh, they they really did a, a tremendous job, and it sounds pretty bloody good to me. Um, oh, and great. so that that'll that'll be viewable in a oh, I'd imagine by the end of the year. And then the other project I was working on is one called 1815, and we shot that almost a year ago now. Um, and that that's actually there's a little um, there's a little film festival out of New York which is currently showing the film, so it can be viewed at the moment. So if you put 1815 screening at New York Film Festival in. Um, it, it, you'll be able to find it. I think it's like fourteen dollars, and you get to watch all the films that are currently on the on the festival bill. And that is all about the clearances, all about that dislocation we were talking about, mm-hmm. uh, about that whole kind of scenario. Um, and uh, it, it's a really interesting kind of a juxtaposition of these two characters: an old man who's sticking to his guns and sticking with the language and everything that he, he knows and holds dear, and this young fellow who's going off to war and then returns and sort of pretends he doesn't speak Gaelic anymore. And there's a whole tension between the characters, and one speaks nothing but Gaelic, and one speaks nothing but English. Okay. And, and, it, and it's really, really interesting the way it works. So I won't spoil it for anybody who's going to watch it. But naturally, I would be biased in saying that these films are good, but I'm not going to be about the bush these films are very very good the herring girls 1815 uh, origins is yet to actually enter full production but these two short films are excellent and well worth a, a watch and culturally very very rich great i will be sure to put the links in uh, on on the website when we when we put the podcast out yeah um, yeah sure so my last question music what are you working on right uh-huh. now what are you doing so yeah, I, I'm glad you re-asked that section of that double barrel question because I'm very keen to talk about my family band. So oh, my, wow. my kids have been exposed to music the same way they've been exposed to uh, the language uh, ever since mm-hmm. they were born. I was singing to them and singing Gaelic to them when, when they were in the womb, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're all good singers, can hold a tune. But um, my boy uh, plays the drums. His twin sister uh, plays the fiddle and the and the clarsucks, you know, the big uh, Gaelic harp. Um, Fantastic. And then my 15-year-old can play the pipe chanter and is pretty good uh-huh. at it, but has since sort of laid that down temporarily and moved over to the guitar because that's my main instrument and she seems you know she's been playing it a month 
and she's already, um, you know, hammering away at bar cards and stuff. I mean, Fantastic. I don't know how she's doing it. She's, you know, it took me a lot longer than that. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then my eldest daughter, who's actually at Wheat University at the moment. Um, well, actually, she's in Canada just now. She's at university doing Gaelic and Chinese up at Aberdeen, so she can't take part in the band, but she's a bass player. Uh-huh. So I've got the whole set up. If you go onto Instagram, then you'll find uh, at Glan, G-L-A-N underscore band, at Glan Band. My kids still aren't on social media perf- personally because I think it's an extremely bad thing to do before mm-hmm. you're old enough to know how yeah. silly it all is. Um, but um, we're now, we now have an Instagram that I run myself um, and it's got little snippets of what we're working on. So it's all Gaelic classics with a kind of folk rock twist so it reflects my previous musical entanglements um, with the the traditional Gaelic side of things and I think lots of harmonies, lots of nice woody, thuddy, the band sounding kind of musical aesthetic and yeah. (laughs) I'm looking forward to checking it out. Wow, so thank you so, so much. This has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Oh, well, it's been a pleasure to me too. I I have the most curse-worthy habit of running off at the mouth and banging my gums for Scotland, you know, but (laughs) it's a shame that... Shame there's not an actual medal or something that my, my wall would be racked with them, you know. Like. <laughs> well, you've reached the right audience today, so no problems here. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, well, I'm glad you enjoyed. Well, enjoy the rest of your evening, and... Um, Thank you. I hope to speak with you again. I'll certainly be in touch. Hi. Okay. Smashing. Right Thank- back, all the very best. Then. Take Thanks care. so much. Can I play my time? Ciao. Can I play it? Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back next Monday. Tune in.